0: Hey everyone, I'm Kara Akabak here with the Sausage of Science, and this week I am going to solo introduce a podcast that I was interviewed for, and we're doing a little bit of cross-pollination between the Sausage of Science and other podcasts that we've had the wonderful opportunity to interact with. So this podcast is called With a Side of Knowledge, and it is the podcast put out by the University of Notre Dame's Office of the Provost, where Ted Fox, who is a really awesome, cool individual, Basically goes around and finds fun people, which I should say fun because I'm included in this, to interview about their work. And this all started when I was invited to do a research uncorked event, which is kind of Notre Dame's science cafe or science on tap where we go to a wine bar and I sit with a glass of wine and talk about my work with a group of people. It's really casual and a lot of good fun. And Ted Fox kind of interviews and moves the conversation along in interesting directions. Anyway, so after that event, Ted invited me to come on to the With a Side of Knowledge podcast. And it's always kind of fun being on the other side of the mic, if you will, for a podcast and also much more nerve wracking. However, this one's really fun because Ted invites you to a brunch. And so you're literally sitting there with breakfast or brunch in front of you talking about your work. And so for me, that's like a giant plate of breakfast meats and eggs. And I get to talk about my work in Finland or Anthropology of Sports or any other of the fun experiences that Ted asks about. And so it was like the best morning ever. And so without further ado, I hope you enjoy the With a Side of Knowledge podcast produced by the University of Notre Dame and Ted Fox in particular. It was a lot of fun. It was a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed doing it.
1: From the University of Notre Dame, this is... With a Side of Knowledge, the show that invites scholars, makers, and professionals out to brunch for an informal conversation about their work. I'm your host, Ted Fox. This episode of With a Side of Knowledge is supported by Traditions Restaurant and Bar, located in the Embassy Suites directly across from the Notre Dame campus. Hours and other information are available at traditionsnd.com. This was the last episode we were able to record at Traditions before we started working remotely due to the coronavirus. A big thanks to Wes and the team for hosting us this semester. We're thinking of everyone in the restaurant industry during this challenging time. Kara Akebach is an assistant professor of anthropology at Notre Dame. A biological anthropologist, she's the director of the Human Energetics Laboratory and explores the physiological and behavioral mechanisms necessary to cope with and adapt to extreme climate and physical activity. Her research has been supported by the National Science Foundation, the National Geographic Foundation, and the American Scandinavian Foundation. Last fall was Kara's first semester at Notre Dame, and we didn't wait long before asking her to do one of our research on Quark live shows at Ironhand Wine Bar in South Bend. She and I got together again in March to record this episode starting with the work that's taken her to the Arctic Circle to study the characteristics of a population whose experience in the extreme cold could hold valuable lessons for all of us. It also may involve Santa Claus's hometown. From there, Kara and I talked about potential insights into the adaptations of a past cold climate population, the Neanderthals, before changing gears to discuss her research at the intersection of anthropology and sports which has grown out of a challenging personal journey as a powerlifter. Yes, she really is as cool as she sounds. Kara Akabak, welcome to With the Side of Knowledge.
0: Thank you so much for having me this morning, and thank you for breakfast.
1: Absolutely. It was it was good. I, we might have got our last snow of the of the season while we were eating. But, yeah. I
0: watched it with my pile of bacon and enjoyed.
1: <laughs> and we've both been up since early this morning, so we're, we're ready to go. Um, you've received grants from several different groups to study people doing a job that I suspect many people listening to this aren't even aware that job exists. I know before I met you, I had never spent any time thinking about it and that job is reindeer herder. And while reindeer herder seems like a super specific profession, I imagine it's not a coincidence that this is a population that you would choose to study. So why reindeer herders? What is it about that job, that lifestyle, that can open up answers to broader questions.
0: Absolutely. So this goes a little bit deeper, even back into my dissertation research. Uh, So I worked with folks who basically lived, hiked, and camped in the Rocky Mountains for like months at a time. And I watched them and worked with them across all different seasons. So spring, summer, winter, fall, so different climates. Uh, And I learned about myself that I just like the cold (laughs) a whole lot better (laughs) than I like any of the other temperatures to to do field work in, which is sad because, you know, research in tropical areas and how people cope with tropical environments is severely lacking. Uh, And so once I had finished up that work in the Rocky Mountains, uh, I started turning my attention towards what do I want to do with the future? And it became how do humans cope with extreme cold? Uh, You know, we evolved out of Africa, which is not an extreme cold place. So what adaptations both physiologically and culturally have developed over time to allow us to expand into these areas that, you know, a lot of other creatures on this planet have not expanded into. Uh, and then it just became finding a place that would allow me to do it. And, you know, to be punny, um, <laughs> I, I sent cold emails to cold emails to researchers in Sweden, in Finland, and Norway to see if anyone might be interested And because I work with cold adaptations, I wanted to work with folks who were exposed to the cold regularly. And so it became what occupations really allowed for that. And reindeer herders were, you know, you've seen National Geographic spreads on them and everything else, but we don't really have a good sense of how many calories it takes to be a reindeer herder. Like, how many are you burning on a daily basis? and What is that like between spring versus winter? And when it came down to it, Finland was the one that was most open and enthusiastic about having me come out. And that's kind of how it all started. It took a long time. It took, I think, three years of setup before I ever collected one single point of data. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, developing international relationships is not an overnight (laughs) deal. Uh, It takes a lot of time and a lot of trust building.
1: So what is that environment like there then when you're going north in Finland? And what does the research itself actually entail when you're out in the field working with these people who are reindeer herders? Summer's beautiful. Okay. It is, of
0: course, a very short summer. And is this um, inside
1: the Arctic Circle? It- yes.
0: Yeah, so I'm at Rovaniemi, which is right on the Arctic Circle. Okay. So they you know, claim to be the home of Santa Claus. Uh, and literally, the Arctic Circle just cuts right just a little bit, tiny bit above Rovaniemi, at least the dot on the map. So yeah, Arctic Circle. So summer, of course, comes with basically all daylight, but it's warm. Like, I don't need a coat. When I I was walking around, at least at Rovaniemi, when you go up north more um, to the northern tip of Finland, yeah, it's a bit cooler for sure. Uh, And a light jacket will serve you well. But they've also had summers that are extremely hot and you don't need, you know, be like here in summer basically. But then winter, when winter comes, winter comes and with it comes the darkness as well. So when I was in there in January, it kind of started with like two hours of dusk. And that's about all you got. Uh, And then it was slowly increasing throughout the month. And snow is like permanent. And it's a huge amount of snow. Uh, And I guess this year in particular, they've got a lot. And they're loving it for cross-country skiing. Whereas the previous year when I was there, there wasn't much and I say that as a relative term, that there wasn't much, right. anyone right. here in South Bend, Indiana would be like, no, that's a lot of that's snow. Lot of snow. Right. <laughs> as in the roads are like permanently coated in snow and it's just been packed down yep. from, you know, from use over and over again. Uh, and it's the kind of cold where, you know, your breath forms crystals on your eyelashes and in your nose kind of thing. Uh, so it's, it's a real winter. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Are you spending days at a time with these individuals while they're While they're herding reindeer, is that how that that works when you're there with them?
0: Sadly, not at this point. But the grant that I'm putting in, that's actually going to be a big part of it. Uh, So this initial study was very narrowly focused and kind of gave the herders the the equipment I needed to collect data and just kind of let them go. But I also had them come into a centralized location so I could do different tests. Uh, So one was looking at the resting metabolic rates, which is the bare minimum amount of energy people burn. For just basic body maintenance. So, you laying on the floor for an entire day would cost, oh, 1700 calories per day. Just heads up. Uh, and we see in Arctic populations or cold climate populations, that number a good deal higher. And it could be like 30% higher oh, wow. uh, than you and I in a temperate climate. And that's just keeping warm. When you're regularly exposed to cold temperatures, your body bumps up the thermostat to keep you warm from all the heat you're losing. Uh, And the other part of that is something called brown fat, brown adipose tissue. And this is a kind of fat that burns only to keep you warm. So you don't burn it off when you go run uh, or go lift weights. Uh, You have to be mildly cold exposed and it's located up at uh, the top of your shoulders. So I have to mildly cold expose the reindeer herders in these bomb suits, uh, which is like a sweatsuit with tubing that runs through and I force cold water in and I'm able to measure brown adipose tissue with a thermal imaging camera and then the, the resting metabolic rate as well. And we see a bump up the moment they start using that brown fat, uh, which is really cool. So there's kind of that two parts where I I give them these monitors to measure the activity that they actually do in the field. And then they come into a makeshift lab, if you will, Mm -hmm. uh, to measure the brown fat and
1: resting metabolic rate. The kinds of things that you're learning about, like the resting metabolic rate or brown fat, Mm -hmm. how can that be applied in a place like South Bend, Indiana, or wherever someone might be listening to this, like, what does it teach us about our bodies that is applicable? If you don't live, In in 24 hour darkness, absolutely. (laughs) This is,
0: of course, exactly where my mind is as I am writing a grant. So, NSF, if you are listening, (laughs) listening, broader impacts coming your way. We'll tweet Uh, it at (laughs) them.
1: Listen to the seven minute mark.
0: (laughs) Uh, Right. So, there are a number of different things. And I think one of the really most interesting ones that I, I see going on, particularly with Finland, is the Arctic is especially sensitive to climate change. And they are seeing things within even the past 10 to 15 years that are drastically different than they used to be. Um, And so trying to understand how humans are coping with both physiologically and culturally with, you know, rapid swings in climate and in weather is going to
1: be really important for us very, very soon. And what are some of those changes that they are seeing
0: there? uh, And so so one of the things that was going on when I was there uh, in October is they would be getting like an early freeze and then it would thaw back up again. And so lakes that would typically have frozen over early are not frozen over. Reindeer think they are frozen over and try to cross like they normally Mm -hmm. would. And herders are losing several reindeer to the deer Mm -hmm. falling into the lakes and dying if they can't get them out they would have to literally be there the moment it happens to get them out in time Uh, so that's just one Uh, they are also getting far more ice coverage that like on top of the snow so you get snow and then ice on top of that Uh, and reindeer would typically be able to dig through the snow to get to the lichens and vegetation to eat but with that ice they can't dig through and so the herders are now having to supplemental feed the reindeer in winter when they didn't have to do that before, uh, right. so it's becoming an economic burden yeah. as well as just you know a hardship in losing all of these reindeer along the way, and so they are seeing a lot of differences going on. And part of what this new study, if it gets funded, will be will also include fishermen, uh, and seeing how that's changing as well, uh, uh, what that occupation is seeing as it, when freezing is different mm-hmm. and when thawing is different. And so as you know, it was negative forty degrees here in South Bend you know, a little over a year ago. Mm -hmm. And so we are seeing these massive swings like this climatic pendulum going on. And so understanding how folks are coping with it now who already live in an extreme environment and have some sense of what it's like, figuring out how they can deal with it can help inform how we might be able to deal with it once we start seeing more and more of these things go on. Uh, Also, brown adipose tissue and, you know, I always hate saying this because there's no silver bullet to anything, Ted. Right. So I am not that, promoting a, a silver disclaimer. bullet yes. cure. Yes, uh, <laughs> Because it does increase metabolic rate. That is a great thing. You burn more calories. That, like, The moment you hear that, you're like, oh, we're <laughs> going to cure obesity. It's all done with right. brown adipose tissue. That is never going to be the case. But it could become a very important therapeutic tool. So why do I say it's not a silver bullet? Uh, it's because, one, not everybody has it. As far as we know, this is, of course, still a very new area of research. And so we just don't have the amount of data, the number of people to say everyone does or everyone doesn't. Uh, but there is high variability. And what we do see is that some people will show evidence of having brown fat, but they actually lower their metabolic rate oh. when they're mildly cold exposed and they will do something called vasoconstrict so their vessels will actually tighten down so they don't lose as much heat to the environment um, and so their blood pressure might rise so oh. that could be bad that could be bad, <laughs> that could be bad. Yes. Uh, and so you have like a you know, pool of people who have this brown fat that will increase metabolic rate great but then you also have this pool of people that don't and there could actually be a detrimental effect mm-hmm. if they have some other underlying health condition going on so it is not a silver bullet but it could be an important therapy tool for dealing with uh, obesity, as well as diabetes, uh, because brown fat seems to use your blood sugar almost exclusively, so it could clear away the glucose in your blood. Sure. But again, that might not work for everybody. Uh, And so it's one of these, again, we just don't have the data to really be able to say any universal rule, which just like there are no silver bullets, there are no universal rules for humans, except there are no universal rules. So (laughs) yeah, so those are some of the broader applications for my
1: work. And I think that's a good just... Aside for anyone, when they encounter very bold claims about mm-hmm. this is the thing that does this period full stop. It's mm-hmm. always good to be a little bit wary of those claims that are are bold like that.
0: Absolutism <laughs> is is never the way to go. Um, and I think the other application that I think is really important is you know the massive amount of human migration that goes on. Um, what can we expect from folks who come from really hot climates? Entering really cold climates, and how can we actually help ease that transition? Trying to better understand what folks do already in those cold climates. We can't force physical adaptations, but we can help along with cultural adaptations and ways of coping that would make life a lot easier.
1: So, I know you've also and are looking at a past cold climate population, the Neanderthals. Mm-hmm. And the name or term Neanderthal, I feel like that gets thrown around really loosely in popular culture. And it's denigrated yeah. so much. And it's like caveman. like yeah. That's just like what it's equivalent to. But it's actually a very specific group. So... Mm-hmm. Who were the Neanderthals, what do we know about them, and what in particular about them are are you looking at?
0: So I will also say that the things I'm about to say does not mean that there's still controversy within our field. Uh, So there are folks who say Neanderthals were basically Homo sapiens and they all interbred and they are not a different species. There are folks who will live and die saying Neanderthals were different species and there was no interbreeding between them and us at any point in time in history the evidence is more and more pointing to there was tons of interbreeding because if, if you look kind of like someone else, there's going to be breeding like they don't (laughs) look that different. (laughs) You're close enough. enough. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) Uh, so yeah, the the Neanderthals have been around for quite some time and uh, the, the, a substantial signal of their population actually starts waning at about 30, 35,000 years ago, but we have fossils that date back to like 200, 300, 500,000 years ago, Uh, particularly in the Middle East, the Levant area, we have things that are very Neanderthal looking, and so they've been around for quite some time, uh, and they were the population that very much moved north. When you think of your stereotypical caveman Neanderthal, they moved north into these interglacial regions where they would have to deal with very cold, harsh climates, Um, and their bodies, from what we can see with the fossils, demonstrate that. Uh, so, if you can imagine like an Arctic hare versus a, a desert hare, think of the ear size. Arctic hares have these really short, stumpy ears, whereas desert hares have these giant, long ears, uh, and that's to be able to maintain their body temperature. The Arctic ones want to maintain as much heat and lose as little as possible, whereas the Arctic or the desert hare. Wants to dump heat to the environment. And like, yep. Exactly. Yep. And so that's what we see with Neanderthals is that they have very shortened limbs relative to us. We are lanky. Um, so they were short and broad. They're like your perfect linemen yeah. um, for the NFL. Yeah. If you yeah, can yeah, imagine, so. they, they would be perfect. And that is reducing the overall body surface area so that they lose less heat to the environment. There's also some potential for better ability to, to climb up... Uh, uneven terrain but that's not been studied as well and so because this is a population that very much lived in a harsh cold climate the hope is is that what we learned from people who live in harsh cold climates today can give us a little bit of insight on how neanderthals other than what we can see from their bones may have dealt with you know interglacial environments
1: because they weren't walking around with Gore-Tex or whatever. They did <laughs> not have Gore-Tex.
0: Uh, there's still even a debate if they you know, used furs for clothes. And I'm like, of course they used furs. Like, the debates are insane. Uh, but new paper actually just came out that uh, used to be thought that only modern-day European populations had Neanderthal DNA, like demonstrating that there was interbreeding between populations. But they now found a whole bunch of Neanderthal DNA throughout African populations. Mm. And people's minds are blown. And I'm like... They looked enough alike, <laughs> of course. <laughs> do you know humans? That's like, do right. you, have do you... you met one? <laughs>
1: so, in addition to your academic work. You are a power lifter.
0: I am a power lifter, how? an occasional power lifter. <laughs> well, we were talking,
1: I mean, you were up, you're up, we were talking when we met here how early you were up because you go to the gym every morning. I do. How much weight does one have to be able to lift to be considered a power lifter? Oh,
0: you don't. It doesn't it's, matter. It doesn't matter. You just said you have to do the big three lifts, which is your bench press, your squat, and okay. your deadlift. So that, that makes you a power lifter. If you are somebody who focuses on that, uh, and those are the three lifts that you work to improve, you're a power lifter.
1: I know for you, this isn't purely an athletic interest. Like I'm sure it, it's part of it. It's part of what you enjoy doing, but how do you connect your work as an anthropologist with sport? Because you have, you have, a, have. you have a history doing that.
0: I, I do. And it's become like this weird ad hoc thing that I never planned on it happening because lifting for me very much started as like an escape from academic work. Uh, it became a place for me to turn my mind off entirely. Sure. And then, yeah. and, you know, that's what happens. There's, there's a, again- I'm gonna this is, lift
1: this heavy thing. <laughs> I'm gonna lift
0: this heavy thing and I can't think because if right. I do, that'll take energy away from the lift. It right. literally, right. my mind shuts right. down during this process. It's wonderful. Um, it quiets the <laughs> it yeah. quiets all the, the yeah. constant churning of the yeah. gears. And so it didn't for a very long period of time. And then there were a, two shifts basically that happened. Uh, one was going to a conference I don't even remember where it was. It was the AAA conference, the American Anthropological Association. But I saw a talk talking about something called edge and flow theory in, in a sport, but not powerlifting. And it's this idea of edge is like you push yourself to an edge, like to a brink of really dangerous stuff. And then flow theory. And I'm probably getting it very wrong as this biological anthropologist (laughs) explaining a very culturally grounded theory. Uh, Flow theory is, and we've all experienced this is like, where the world kind of falls away. Mm-hmm. When you're doing something and you are highly engaged in it, nothing else matters. And you kind of enter this almost alternate state of mind. And when I heard that, I'm like, that totally explains me. Like one, the edge theory, like, yeah, I'm pushing myself to, to limits that I really probably right. shouldn't and that are not safe. But reaching that flow state, like that's exactly what it is. There, every single time I've ever done a big lift and I've hit it, I have no memory of that lift. And it's mm. like because my conscious mind wow. disappeared. I was gonna say that's
1: fascinating. And yeah, and like that's fascinating. Something yeah. else took yeah. over.
0: And I will remember walking up yep. to, you know, the platform and I will remember like crumpling to the ground in happy joy tears, but I remember nothing in between about the actual lift. And that just kinda got me thinking about it from an anthropological perspective about these different theories that people have applied in so many other fields and how it applies to strength sports, which like Nobody studies in anthropology, and we totally should. And then the other one that that really shifted my perspective was the Notre Dame job. I was at the University of Albany and I was at a gym at Albany that it was a very rough road uh, at the beginning at that gym, like six months of sexual harassment, several months of them being completely ignored and then becoming like an institution at that place where like if I didn't show up, people were concerned for my welfare kind of thing. And like, you know, I was the go to to ask questions and spot and all that kind of stuff. So it was a journey and I had never thought of it as such until I knew I was coming to Notre Dame Uh, and I started looking back at that whole experience, which was horrible to start and then became like a refuge for me. It was one of my happiest places to be. And then I just kind of started thinking about it anthropologically, like what theories, like what happened? And it it applied to so many things like rites of passage, for example, so much work has been done on, you know, rites of passage and that's exactly what was going on. And I had never thought of it like that. I just thought people were being jerks Mm -hmm. and I have to deal with this and how do I deal with this? But all of that body of work has been done and it was very, very applicable. And then also the work of trying to understand like why dudes were being sexist jerks, like, All that work has all already been done, and so I wrote up a popular piece for *Sapiens*, which is the the blog for um, anthropology, basically all mm-hmm. of anthropology, put on by the Wenner-Gren Foundation. And it was a very cathartic experience for mm-hmm. me writing that up, trying to figure out like what happened during that three-year period. And literally, I would open up the file and start crying, and then I would like. Type a couple hundred words and then keep crying. Uh, And, like, it helped me work through that entire process. Mm -hmm. uh, Because it was traumatic for a while, but Mm -hmm. then very transformative in who I became, um, you know, to the loudmouth individual now who just won't take crap from people. Uh, (laughs) And so that's kind of how it started. And then it became. So that was
1: when you are at Albany. At Albany. And then you came here and thought, like. It actually happened in the
0: summer. It happened during the transition from Albany to South Bend. It was one of these, like, that summer I wrote that up. Yeah. Um, And so, like, while I was transitioning, you know, places, I was analyzing that transition at that gym it was a weird time period just moving places figuring everything out and so that was a very it was an emotionally draining thing to write but it was perhaps maybe the most powerful thing at least in my opinion that I've ever written and then from that it also these other questions came out like my lifting got so much better once I was accepted into that gym and I had this social network and so how does social networking influence performance and what is a completely individual sport like no right. one's right. else lifting that weight right. for you but right. like having that person there as a, you know your support having your favorite spotter there makes All the difference. Uh, And I saw that in my own performance. And like even now, though I have great people here at the gym, I just haven't had the time to develop the same relationships. And so, like, I see my lifting suffering um, all over again. And I just know I have to be patient and, you know, develop it all over again. Yes. Um, And so it's become this question. And I've got a couple of collaborators where we're, we're thinking about these things now and actually trying to developed the ideas to put together a large study of looking at strength sports from an anthropological perspective of both the, you know, the sociocultural side about those social networks, but you know, being the biological anthropologist I am, I want to know like the metrics, what sort of, you know, what hormones are being involved, what performance is being involved, all of these things. I want the hard numbers on that. Uh, and so we're looking at ways at collaborate to do that. And I actually submitted an internal grant to Notre Dame to bring a bunch of those folks out for a conference on campus that looks at strength sports, particularly for uh, underrepresented populations, so women and people of color, uh, because they often have it a whole lot harder to work their way into these communities than anyone else
1: right it's really I mean thank you for sharing all that I mean and it's in the article yeah, so not, like, not, it's already
0: out <laughs> in the world
1: <laughs> well and I, I I think there's a natural I mean we were joking before we talked because the last time we talked we we talked about the movie Rocky Four. yes and <laughs> I mean you talking about the social cultural aspect around powerlifting and strength sports, and mm-hmm. you had a piece that was picked up um, by the Hill back in the fall after the World Anti-Doping Agency ruled to ban Russia from the 2020 mm-hmm. Olympics for performance-enhancing drugs, yeah. basically. And I thought your your perspective on it was so interesting because it wasn't this Rocky Four image of, wow, Russia's the one bad mm-hmm. actor in the world. There's something that's going on culturally that applies to athletes regardless of wherever mm. they're from. And when you were talking about kind of the edge and flow thing there too, of yeah. pushing yourself to an edge, it was making me think of that again. Mm-hmm. Of like there's a broader cultural dynamic that I know you identified as it's being really problematic here.
0: It is. Uh, so you almost can't talk about, I mean, this is not a strength sports thing. This is an all sports thing. Mm-hmm. You almost can't talk about sports these days without bringing up performance enhancing drugs, but it's always an interesting conversation, especially like when guys bring it up in the gym the very different attitudes about it, you will see there are those who like completely not only scorn it, but then you also wonder, are they still doing it on the side? And they're just publicly scorning it. And then there are those who are just like, so open, like, oh yeah, I ordered this, this right. and this, and I can't wait to see what right. happens. And you're just like, whoa. <laughs> Is it going to
1: make me go be faster? Is going to make me be bigger? Yeah, right. exactly. Okay. Uh, yeah.
0: And I mean, I'm not sure how much time we have, but like, <laughs> there are some things, there's a study, this researcher was a friend with like a national weightlifting coach. And these guys, I do not know how they got IRB approval for this, Uh, but they decided to do an experiment with the national weightlifting team. And they told them that they were gonna give them, all these weightlifters, these super fast acting performance enhancing drugs. Like you will see immediate effects. One silver bullet doesn't exist. So those athletes, one should have known better. (laughs) (laughs) Right, But secondly, they were just giving them sugar water. Mm -hmm. So they weren't giving them anything. So they gave them the sugar water that they were told were fast-acting steroids. And everyone added, like, 20 pounds to each of their lifts. Anyone listening to this, if you add 20 pounds in a year to your lift, that's phenomenal at the Mm -hmm. elite level. Like, that's Mm -hmm. amazing. And they were doing it, like, instantly. Yeah. And then, like... Two weeks later, they tell half the group that those weren't steroids, they were fake, but they let the other half continue to believe that they were steroids. And the ones who were told were fake, like their numbers were lower than before they even were given the fake drug. Whereas those who were told it was good, were still going up. Uh, And so there's always this interesting psychological aspect of performance enhancing drugs, like bigger, faster, stronger. The evidence goes this way and that way. Mostly, yes, it does work, but the psychological impact of it is massive. I mean, the more and more I read about this, both historically and in modern day, performance enhancing drugs have just been on the scene since, you know, the ancient Greeks and ancient Romans. They were using strychnine as a performance enhancing drug, by the way. Rat poison for those. Mostly, my students also don't know what strychnine is these days. (laughs) And I'm just like, wait, does everyone know (laughs) what strychnine is? It's rat poison. Uh, And everyone uses, I feel like almost everyone uses, I can't say all, but. I would not be surprised if it's far more pervasive than people are are even letting on. And the interesting part about it is the level of like administrative blind eye or even intentional blind eye that's going on at these agencies that are supposed to be policing it in some way or another when you start reading into it you hear them like hiding test results or holding back on test Mm -hmm. results just to get a you know an intended outcome during some athletic event so it's throughout and the way rocky four comes into this is that like yeah russia got caught but you know why does russia always get caught like, and it's because of that whole mentality that Rocky IV really put out there that you know, it's part of the Cold War era mm-hmm. of like Russia's always the bad actor. Mm-hmm. And so we just always assume they're doing something bad. So let's test them harder and then let's, you know, uh, you know, aggressively police them and give them really tough rulings when it comes down to it. And I think a lot of it comes down to that, you know, that cultural bias of, yeah, it's Russia because, of course, they're cheating. Americans would never right. cheat. Yeah, No.
1: So the study that I was thinking when you were bringing that up, Mm -hmm. and I think it's – because you talked about kind of as long as we as a society are demanding these better and better and better Mm -hmm. performances from human beings that theoretically have an upward bound of Mm -hmm. performance. But there was one, and I'll let you tell it, but it was the one about basically if you gave – Olympic athletes, mm-hmm. this choice of, in terms of winning a gold medal and taking mm-hmm. a performance enhancing drug.
0: Yeah. So they were, the athletes were surveyed on two questions. And the first one was, if you were offered a performance enhancing drug and guaranteed you would not get caught, would you take it? And it was something like 95% of them said they would. And so the willingness to just take it is there entirely there. I also wonder how true that 5% were. And you're wondering, like, is this a test? <laughs> will What's they test my mean urine mean? after That's they right. take this, this survey? Um, right. <laughs> and then the second question was, if I offer you a performance enhancing drug that guarantees you will win a gold medal, you will not get caught, but you will die five years after the fact. Die. die. Yes. Like not even just get ill a little bit, but literal death. Would you take it? And over 50% said they still would. We, we, we want to see superhumans, but we don't want to admit how they became superhuman. Uh, and that's the really interesting cultural divide. I mean, you know. We want to believe it was mm-hmm. all natural, exactly. but we don't want to
1: sacrifice the we, we unnatural don't performance. But I
0: think it's even to the point where, like, we're okay if they're taking steroids, yeah. as long as we never know, we about, know it. Never well about it. Like, right. you know, there's got to be a certain part, like, it's this cognitive dissonance kind of thing yeah. going on, like, I think we're all aware on some level they are, but as long as they don't get caught and we don't know about it, we're good. Um, You know, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas Mm -hmm. kind of deal. I feel like that's not okay. Mm And in in so many levels of like, we we need to have this moment where we realize really what it is we're doing and what it means for sport. And it means for the athletes, because Mm -hmm. they're the ones who suffer in the end Mm -hmm. Um, especially the young ones. Uh, You know, adults can make their own decision about performance enhancing drug use, but you know, Olympians, you get yeah. young kids, so, yeah. like the gymnasts, especially yeah. so young, like that can really mess up their development. Yeah. And that's really concerning. And you see an increased use of steroids among high school students these days across mm-hmm. the U.S. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're ordering off the internet, and, but they're still taking it and it's completely unregulated. So yeah, it's scary. And it's an interesting topic that I, I think is gonna just keep on coming up more and more and more.
1: Mm-hmm. So last question, what is your best elevator pitch description of The Sausage of Science.
0: All right. The Sausage of Science is a podcast for the Human Biology Association and the American Journal of Human Biology, in which we look at all things human, how we interact with one another and how we interact with our environment. And we want to highlight that work and highlight the excellent research so that we can reach a broader audience and let them know how applicable our work is.
1: That's a good elevator pitch. I tried. <laughs> I, I feel like I want to steal it from my own elevator pitch from do what it. we do with this podcast. Go
0: for it. <laughs> Tweak it maybe a little.
1: Kara Akevac, this was just as much fun as the first time. Thank you for uh, talking to me today.
0: Thank you. It was a joy.
1: <laughs> with a Side of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast.